0: One two five nine. Bob the leader, rector, reverend, deacon, elder. What the hell? What do you think about all of this? Is, is is this like, I I feel like I'm fighting for my life a little bit. Like I'm riffing. <laughs> oh <laughs>
1: because, no! <laughs>
0: because I'm not. I'm not an ethicist at all. I'm, I'm like. I'm like. Oh, I need Beth McKinney here. Uh, like Beth McKinney would help. But like. But but like what do you think about all this? Is this, is this making sense? Like do what what's what's the sparking in you?
1: Yeah, I mean I think primarily I wanted the I wanted to be able to make a distinction for myself of like what is ethics? Ethics has kind of been one of those words without real meaning for me mm-hmm. of like yeah, I think I know what that means, but like do I know what it means akin to like the like the scientific method versus like scientism right like Mm -hmm. there is a process for coming up with like scientifically verifiable results and it involves the scientific method and peer review and repeatability and all this kind of stuff and you can say that other things are science but they're not like properly this scientific way of thinking about things and and because people think people take science to be more broad than that, like set of actions and the knowledge that comes out of thinking that way, mm-hmm. um, they come up with weird things that are that are I believe in science and like that's not the that's not really what we're talking about when we're talking about science, right? Like yeah. they have now developed an ethic, a belief system around something that's just a principle, I guess. And for me, like, when I talked about ethics, it was the same thing. It was kind of devoid of real meaning. And so I think I have a handle now on the, I guess, what I what I learned in my, like, philosophy 101 class in seminary is that, like, the question of ethics – maybe the question of philosophy question mark um is to uh to live a good life. And I was always kind of frustrated by that cuz like to me living a good life means like vacationing on a beach somewhere. You know, like that's mm-hmm. the good life because like that's how we colloquially use it. But yeah. I think I've now been able to shift that to like really how do we live a moral life? How do we live a life that like I I would say like my personal ethical system has like the well-being of all as my like end right that like mm-hmm. everybody is loved in the fullest way which means not only emotionally loved but like cared for recognized honored and able to live their like fullest um, into the into the fullness of their being I guess. And that, that provides different ethical answers than a system that says, well, the best, the, the good life is the thing that makes me feel best or increases my wealth the most or whatever.
0: Yeah. And I, I hear that. And I see that in you. And I think that that does describe you very well. I would say I have two thoughts. But one of my things is I would say that for me, my ethical system is really oriented around particularity.
1: Yes, don't worry about that.
0: So for me, I I just don't I I mistrust humans' ability to like properly work towards the end, like the good end of of all things, like systemically, right? Like and this isn't me rehashing my I don't like systemic sin discourse. This is more this is more of a, a question about our limitations. Yeah, um, can
1: we even understand what like a good the good end is? Right,
0: right. Like when we start talking about universal, you know, we start or when we start just talk, just trying to broaden it as much as we can, like to to include everybody. We uh, we're we're unable to see people as people much anymore, right? Like I am influenced. This is a Kantian influence on me, right? I tend to think that Kant is probably right about people being their own ends. I tend to think that, meaning I am not super duper interested, and I do think it's wrong to come up to an individual person and say, I understand that this is the life you want to live, but it ends now, right? Like, I think that we are on shaky ethical ground there. I can understand why we might need to do that sometimes, but I think that um, many people—this is why I don't like utilitarian thinking. I think many people think that we need to do that a lot more often, yeah, than we really need to. And and even when we do it, even when I think it might be justified in doing it, there is a there is a tension there that I don't think that that when people gleefully ignore i get very uncomfortable with this is why i bring up uh, or have brought up things like like coal mining industry right you know the yes of course the coal the coal industry is killing the planet and they must be stopped of course they must and and while we do that a way of life will probably come to an end and maybe it should but when we collectively decide That it's going to be okay because we will just tell them and give them opportunities to learn new jobs anyway. We miss Kant's uh, idea that people are their own ends. Hmm. And we treat them as means to an end. Because we have said to them, okay, we have taken away your life. We've taken away the life you have made. And maybe we have to, but we've done that. And now you have to make a new life. And we've selected it for you. Here it is, computer engineering, enjoy. Or here it is, data entry, enjoy. And um, right. or here it is, solar panels, you know, have a great time. We've done it. Oh, you don't want it? Then go fucking rot in the street. yeah. You know what I mean? All, we've treated them as a means to an end and the end might be making the earth a better place. But but we still we still sort of robbed the the central ethical notion here of this is a person of dignity. This is a person who you know there are people now who would say this but like 50 years ago we many of us would have no problems saying this to a queer person. We understand that this is the life you want, but it ends now. And that's okay because here's conversion therapy and here is um, uh, 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 the, some other ideologies that will help you learn to love just one person of the opposite sex. As remember, you don't need to love the opposite sex. You just need to love one person in the opposite sex and, uh, and here's all the stuff we're giving. Oh, wait, you don't want to do that? Well, go fucking rot. Yeah. You know, and, and I just think there's a real tension there that um, I think increasingly there are people who feel really good about ignoring. Um, yeah. And, and, it's, and it's not as simple as we think. That's why I think utilitarian ethics is fraught. That's why I don't find the trolley problem to be terribly compelling anymore, where, where, where I, I, I'm, like, I'm like, this scenario does not help us do ethics even a little bit. All what all, <laughs> right. it reveals to us is how shitty we are, <laughs> that, that we, can't, we can't come up with a solution that doesn't involve running people over. A- and we say, do you run over one person or do you run over five people? Which do you choose? Do you choose the, the, the idea that everybody is inherently worthy or do you choose the idea that um, uh, uh, we should be producing the most good for the most amount of people? What do you choose? And, and, and I'm like, well, it's kind of funny because if I choose doing the most good for the most amount of people I and, and kill that one guy, I have still done tremendous harm to a fucking large amount of people. Right because, right. because that one guy, I assume, has people who love him. Uh, I've done harm to me as the murderer driving the trolley. <laughs> and and the scenario doesn't help. Where are the fail safe systems? They're broken. Shut the fuck up. They can't all be broken. The scenario right. doesn't help. The scenario is is a conjured scenario that would never, ever happen.
1: Right. And I think it, it just invites critique of the scenario, right? It just invites you to say, okay, like in this moment, I guess I'm going to save the most people that I can save. But the very next thing I do is to ask how these people got tied to a track and where the fail saves are, <laughs> you know, like the next thing I'm going to do is look at the the problems with the scenario.
0: Right. I'll also, you know, just as, as to, to wrap up on this end, like, uh, from this point, I I think that when we when we say yeah we need to run over the one guy to save the many people, and we don't recognize that this is an impossibly bad thing we've done. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we miss uh, some some parts of our ethical formation that are really caked into our like ourselves. I don't mean like metaphysically, I mean like, you know, just even just socially um, that uh, really do some moral damage to us. That really do, right? I actually think Batman is a better example um, in some ways. Batman's one rule is he doesn't kill. Uh, and that means that he doesn't kill the Joker. Really, yeah. <laughs> you know, and and everybody goes, But think about all the harm that the Joker does or can do. And Batman responds with, first of all, I mean, Batman's not a moral philosopher, but if he was, he might respond with, first of all, you cannot invoke potential harm. That's harm that hasn't happened. It doesn't exist. So shut the fuck up about that. That's not helpful for ethics. It's a magic trick that we do when we want to justify just bombing Iraq, right? We justify bombing Iraq by by appealing to a harm that has not happened, but mm. might happen, <laughs> right? Like, come on. Um, but second of all, it does not matter because if we are serious about saying things like people just are made in the image of God, or are ends in and of themselves, or are, are infinitely valuable. That includes the Joker. It includes people that are bad or commit evil. And I'm sorry. Um, It really does not, things don't change the moment we say, but the Joker doesn't believe that about other people, because when we say that it just gets us off the hook from doing ethics. Right. You know, it doesn't matter. I have no control over what the Joker does. I don't, nor should I, you know, but instead I have control over what I can do, at least a little bit. And if, and if people are good, if people are, are ends in and of themselves, then that includes my enemy.
1: Right. Well, so then, so then my, the question that comes up for me with that is how do we, um, um, how does anybody stop as anybody else from doing something bad? You know, like, I, sure. I only have control over what I can do or what I decide. But, like, can I not, in a, like get into community with the Joker or find somebody who can be in community with the Joker and understand why the Joker is doing what what the Joker does and figure out ways to hold the Joker accountable and and get the Joker to stop doing what the Joker is doing? Like, are there not um, non-physically coercive ways to do that? And uh, like, I understand that the Joker as a character is supposed to be like the complete uncontainable evil, you know, like it it is supposed to be that, but that, that doesn't really exist in a person, you know? Mm -hmm. And if it does, it's a person who um, often was hurt from like the very beginning. And so there is like a primal wound you can heal. There is work to do.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that that, you, the questions are great joe and i don't have good answers for it but i think like this is where like the phrase moral imagination comes in oh okay and and where where we say yeah this is this is the real reason why i don't like deontology and why i don't like kant it is it is there's is no imagination there is no right. there is no sense of sort of like the creative in in morality what makes something like process thought good <laughs> is um, it's always goes back to the creative. How do we respond to evil and suffering in the world? We get creative. Mm-hmm. You know, we 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 do the slow and agonizing process uh, uh, of of dreaming and imagining, and then constructing and following those dreams and imaginations and and taking what's there and, and figuring out how we can spin it, not not like spin it in like a bad way, but like but like redeem it, do something with it, creatively do something along those lines, right to yeah. make what we to, to, to make good come out of this. This is why Georgia Harkness, Dofford uh, North Whitehead says this too. but this is why Georgia Harkness calls God the poet of the world. Mm -hmm. you know, because there's something about it, like about making poetry that does that, you know, like making poetry is, is not, uh, does not really bring order into the world. It brings art and meaning and beauty into the world. It takes all of the pieces and, and it re um, orients them in a certain way. So as we see something, meaningful out of it something beautiful out of it i think that that's good ethical action in the world particularly when we start talking about like real evil and real injustice and stuff but i think that humans are i think that we get tired yeah and and i think that is really hard and so i think we activate the kantian cheat code and yeah and, and, and we, sometimes we have to do it. Like sometimes we have to activate the Kantian cheat code when an immediate thing needs to take place. Right? Like, like when we go, we must immediately react and respond to this in an ordered way. It's the only way we can move forward. It's the only way we can get it done. Holy shit, a tsunami has just struck Indonesia. Well, now is not the time for creative dreaming of a better world. Right. Now now is the time for, I'm going to say militant, militant action, not military action, but militant ordered action towards the end of, of helping the island country of Indonesia, where we say, what do we do? And somebody goes, this is what we do. We need this many of this resource. We need this many people in this part. We need you to be doing X, Y, Z. And if you do all of this, real good will happen. And you don't have to like the people of Indonesia. You don't have to like their their way of life. You don't have to like their religion. You don't have to like any of that. The only thing you need to do is you need to respect the call of duty on your lives. And you need to go and you need to build a fucking hospital.
1: Yeah. And like, that is who, I mean, are we, maybe this is not the right phrase. Maybe this doesn't fit in at all, but does like duty become the sovereign in that case and who decides who we have a duty to? I mean, but I think that's like the liberal democracy thing is we have a duty to everybody and like this, this person's in crisis and therefore we help. That is what we do. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. The, this is so, so, we're talking a lot and and I'm actually this the last thing you said was really great as well. Like it's sparking something in me. The the whole idea of the moral law presupposes that there's a sovereign, right? Who has yeah. given us the law. And so when we attempt to um like talk about this stuff and, and, and try to do like, well, does that mean duty is the sovereign? No, God is the fucking sovereign. Right, right. Like, like I and and actually that's what we want. I know it sounds weird to say it this way because sovereignty is is should be endlessly critiquable, but it should be endlessly critiquable in the same way that idols are critiquable. Yeah. The the last thing that we want is something that is sovereign that is not the ultimate. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And, and and so what we want is the ultimate to be sovereign not dictator we're not saying that but but uh, the ultimate to be to but for it to be sovereign it means it's to be the final arbiter the final yes. thing that says this is it this is reality Iris Murdoch a philosopher brought up in the past calls the good the sovereign right? Who is the sovereign? Who is in charge? Who is who holds the standard? The good, with a capital G, holds the standard. And now, how we determine what the good is—there's lots of ways in which lots of traditions to do that, but but that is a much better uh, thing than the dear leader.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: The good is much closer to the ultimate than the leader right it might not be the ultimate like we might be able to critique the good that's fine but like that i think we can say that the good or truth or um love is far closer to the unconditional to to the ultimate than um kim jong un yeah yeah. You know? Why? Well, partially because he's evil, but but actually to use this language of uh to use the philosophical language, it's because he is a construction. Hmm. He is conditioned.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You
0: know? He is made or, or to use the Hebrew language, he is made out of the earth. Yeah. And the stuff that's made out of the earth is good and very good and lovely and beautiful but it is not beauty it is not love it is not the unconditional
1: so uh, does that are we back at idealism or is that not what idealism is
0: no idealism is about the mind um okay. idea you know <laughs> the ideas right it's sure not, but it, like it,
1: yeah. is it do we not do we have access to like that's i guess that's my question do we have access to true beauty true love true goodness or like do we only have our ideas of what those things
0: are well if you're a kantian yeah we only have our ideas of what those things are if you were you know maybe something different like if you're a, a If you're, I don't know, Meister Eckhart, then yes, as you enter into more mystical states, then you have you have immediate access. I don't think that's true. I think that all of our access is always mediated access, right? Like I don't think we I think that we just catch glimpses. You know, I've thought about this a little bit since I've been reading Caputo, and like I think that I can ca- this is very personal for me. I think that I can catch a glimpse of the true God in the half a second flash after I have torn down an idol. Hmm. Hmm. Just for a second, just for a moment, I go. I see it, and then it recedes and it disappears. Right as as the unconditional often does. Uh, you know, because it's not a thing, (laughs) right? Right. You know, it's, it's, uh, I just did that with my students at JMU, uh, where we did apophatic theology, you know, and the God beyond being and stuff where Gregory of Nazianzus works through, you know, what God is not. And he's like, God is not a thing. And everybody's like, okay. And he's like, that means that God is neither big nor small because God is not a thing and only things have size. That means that God is neither young nor old because God is not a thing and only things have age. God is neither here nor there because God uh, has no physical boundaries and does not have to – does not have space and time. And so – because God is not a thing, right? And then the last thing Gregor Nazianzus says is God does not exist. What? Because, because only things exist. Exist. Okay. And God is not a thing. And then I don't think Gregory says this, but like other folks who follow Gregory, like the Areopagite says, God is is actually no thingness, nothingness. God is nothingness. And then, you know, as this discourse evolves, you discover that the entire doctrine of the creation of from nothingness is really the doctrine of the creation from God. Because God, because nothingness and God might be the same thing. Uh, and you can you you negate over and over and over until you arrive at God does not exist. God is nothingness. But then they but but they say, but remember, just because God does not exist does not mean that God isn't real. Or if, if it might, or if we could say it this way, if the phrase God exists isn't true, which the apophatic theologians would say, that is not a true phrase. God exists is not a true phrase. Perhaps a true phrase might be that God is. Okay. So all of the I say all of this to just say like this this kind of notion of like the unconditioned and, and all of this stuff, the unconditioned by its definition does not exist. Because the unconditioned is not a thing. It could not be a thing, because then it would be an idol.
1: Right. Oh you you lost me for a second there. I think I'm catching up.
0: Keep going. <laughs> okay. I like I said I just I just taught this in JMU, so it's on my mind. And so like different Christian theologians who like talk like this, like ancient theologians would would do all of this negation. And then they would say um but we can know God in creation. Not not because God is a thing, but because the the names of God can shine out in things. And so uh, the example I used is love. And I ask everybody, is love a thing? And a lot of people are like, well, of course, love is a thing. And I'm like, maybe, maybe the concept, but I mean, love. I mean, just love itself is love a thing. Yes. And I'm like, I'm not sure that's true because you can't point to love. You can point to things in love, but you can't point to love. Just like how you can't point to beauty, you can point to things that are beautiful, but you can't point to beauty. You can. Po- you can't. You can. You can't point to goodness. You can point to things that are good, but you can't point to goodness. And and this, like, you know, this is the, the metaphysics of participation, right? Like things exist insofar as they participate in God, who is not a thing and therefore does not exist. Um, and those things like love, beauty, goodness, truth, those are God's proper names, because those are the realities of God that that things or creatures participate in for their existence. And so God is not a thing. Love is not a thing. Goodness is not a thing. Beauty is not a thing. All what God is is love, beauty, goodness, truth. Okay. I don't necessarily buy that all the time. You don't have to buy that either. None of us have to buy that. But it's an example of like a way of thinking about this stuff without – thinking about this stuff uh, through the unconditional, Right. What does it mean to say that God is unconditional? Part of it is is to say that God is real but does not exist because God is not a thing. Um, And uh, uh, our actions, what things do, the relationship between things and the unconditioned is a relationship of participation and devotion. Because, yeah, I'll leave it at that is a relationship of participation and devotion. I am devoted and I participate in, I'm devoted to and I participate in love.
1: Okay. that That's
0: an example, right? I'm devoted to and I participate in goodness and so on and so on. And, and, and all of this is just to say, I am devoted to and I participate in God. Who does not meet me as a as a person, but instead I meet God um, in my. <laughs> I sound so pretentious. In my personing, <laughs> I can't believe I said that. Uh, but you <laughs> know what I mean.
1: <laughs> I do know what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> um, in 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 yeah yeah. Um, in my living, in my being, in my existing in my doing maybe um yeah oh yeah. huh. i i it's funny like this all leads me back to in a weird way the worship service of mm-hmm. like should that not be the place where we practice participating in god um participating in like goodness and and love and beauty and truth and all this kind of stuff and how often is the worship service just unrelated Entirely to that, you know. Um, yeah, and and I don't even know. I cannot even think how you would design a weekly gathering that would allow you to participate in this, that is not um, that does not fundamentally look nothing like how our our regular christian gathering like i don't know why i jump immediately to formation but like boy the worship service does not form people (laughs) to to live um according to a christian ethic to seek out the good life you know to think theologically about their actions yeah
0: yeah not often not often i i have to agree um i so i i think that this like God is is not a being, God does not exist stuff, even if it's, I'm not prepared to like, just dive into like the kind of Neoplatonic side of all that, because this is rooted in a kind of Christian Neoplatonism. I think that that sort of discourse, I think has to be right. Can I say one last nerdy thing at you? Sure. Okay. Paul Tillich, sorry, everybody. Paul Tillich has an essay that everybody should read. It's called The Two Ways of the Philosophy of Religion. I might get the title slightly wrong. And in this essay, Paul Tillich says, in the philosophy of religion, in in the human being's way of being religious, we can do this. We can do religion in two different ways. One way is is what Paul Tillich calls the way of estrangement. Hmm. And the other way is the way of the stranger. Okay. He says, in the way of estrangement, by doing religion in this lens as the way of estrangement, we imagine that meeting God is essentially meeting yourself and then discovering that there is something within you that is infinitely more than you. Hmm. In the way of meeting a stranger or the way of the stranger, we discover that meeting God is a little bit like meeting somebody who you will never, ever get to fully know. Because they are fundamentally closed off from you. And at best, all we can do is be in mediating relationships with them. Um, Paul hmm. Tillich would say the way of the, uh, the way of estrangement is essential because th- because the way of the stranger naturally cleaves religion and philosophy in two.
1: Ooh, okay, okay, I am starting to follow.
0: And so for for Tillich. Uh, So like the way of estrangement, Tillich says, remember, God is the ground of our being. What that means is, is that my existence and all other existing things existence is in an important way, the same as God. It does not mean that it's pantheism. It just means that things that exist are receiving their existence from the ground of existence and so we can interpret everything around us as a kind of theophany right as a kind of as a kind of finite unfolding of god as the ground of existence as the ground of being and that's what tillich means when he says knowing god is like knowing yourself and discovering that there is something infinitely more. Because when we know mm-hmm. God, who is the source of our, the ground of our existence, we we also go, oh, it's, it's also like me. Because I am just a finite being who has received his existence from being with a capital B. That doesn't exhaust what God is, because God is infinitely more than that. But, but that means for Tillich that the way of estrangement means that, that religions, like this version of religion, religion's entire goal is self-knowledge and the knowledge of, of existence and the knowledge of God being one thing. It's a unifying thing. It means that philosophy and religion and art and science all are discourses about God because they are all discourses about being.
1: Okay, I think I think I'm into that. I my brain is is working on like overdrive and so I can feel it heating up and not accepting new information, but when I listen back, I'll let you know. Okay. I, so my final like my final question to kind of wrap this together with where we started, it in this case, if we're all Uh, if we're all beings participating in in the ultimate being question mark, um, then can't we just go back to the power of positive thinking? Can't we just go back in and find within ourselves that which is true and will that into betterness? Like how, how do we not get caught back in individualism?
0: Well, if I just speak for Tillich, Tillich would just say that uh, positivity is simply one element of the groundless ground of being. That that like it's not that God in Tillich's world, the ground of being is not all good.
1: Oh, okay.
0: Like the ground of being contains all of the all of the rich weirdness of beings. Like it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that like our our sort of willing actions are, you know, are neutral. That's not really what Tillich is saying. Tillich really does think that murder is wrong. Tillich really does think all of these things are are like evil and wrong um, and are examples of like us like rupturing and, and doing bad shit. But like the kind of darkness of our existence like like the 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 suffering, the negativity, the the pain, the anguish, you know the 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 scariness of discovering that sometimes we are strong, Ooh. and then the scariness of discovering that other times we are very weak. Sex and um and and laughter and joy and uh, uh openly weeping and and anger. All of those things, all of those things are contained in the ground of being. Okay. Um. And so, like, the power of positive thinking for Tillich is is a fucking lie. Like, like it's like no, it, it's we're not the idea that God is this infinite, you know, kind of divine mind who who just has universal positive regard for everything. Tillich would say. You truly, surely, you don't believe that, because all we have to do is just consider our own lives and consider the lives of beings in general, and and we we can see that there are things about existence that, um, if they disappeared, existence would disappear. You know, like killing. Right. You know, or, or all of this stuff, and so Tillich has an am, slightly more ambiguous kind of way of seeing some of this uh, that that sort of rejects the power of positive thinking. Um, I, by way of my wrap up with this, Joe, like I think that like what makes the power of positive thinking, you know, not very good, and and not certainly not a very good ethic uh, or like things to attach to ethics is because, um, well, I mean, it's, it's a lie. It's, it's not just that it's not, it's not just a lie in the sort of the grifter way. It's a, it's a lie in the, for the true believer, they're ignoring a great many things about who they are, who other people are, how the world works, how existence works, and what God may be, you know, the This is what Tillich means by the way of the stranger. If God is another thing, then it's actually impossible to know him fully because things are closed off from other things.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: I just had a uh I, I didn't talk about this essay but like we talked about it in one of my sections uh, on like the power of positive thinking and some of this other stuff where you know I I was like somebody a uh, student made a comment about you know coming to know people right like or 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 like you know knowing themselves like why well, know myself and 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 others can can know me too I forget the exact thing and I, and I said, I got very serious and I was like, you know, something that truly haunts me. Uh, and this is true. This is true. Listeners. Something that truly haunts me is that one day I will die and my children will never know the real me. hmm And, and they were, they were like, wow, that's kind of dark. And I'm like, it is a little dark. And they're like, well, you know, what are you keeping from them? Like, they didn't say it quite like that.
1: <laughs> but, sure, like, but like that, the assumption is that you're hiding something when you say something like that. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. And, and I was like, oh, no, no, no. Like, I mean, we all hide things from each other. We all have certain kinds of secrets, right? But I was like, no, no, no. It's, even if I'm totally open, you know, even if I, even if I tell them everything about me, they can't know me. They can't get inside of me and see how I see the world and feel the world. They can't see the love I have for them. Mm. Actually, they just have to have faith that I love them because there's no way to prove that anybody loves anybody. Loving relationships are essentially relationships of faith. That's why we call cheating unfaithfulness.
1: Ooh, sorry. I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to put that on a t-shirt.
0: <laughs> that's true though. That's how, yeah. exactly how it works. Um, uh, and, and I was like, it haunts me guys. It truly haunts me. Um, and they were at, Oh, it says they were talking about memory. We live on in other people's memories. And I was like, ah. do we, do we, do I live on in my child's memories? Yes. Of course not
1: no the your yeah their memory of you lives on that's not
0: you that's not me they'll never know who I am and and like it's it's haunting it really does haunt me it really does haunt me that is the way of the stranger
1: ah okay okay in,
0: in this way of thinking there is always it's not just that there's always mystery it's that there is always absence, hiddenness, guessing, may being, right? There is never, there is never knowledge. There is never union. You know, there's never, there's never any of that. And Tillich, you know, wants to say that is not a great way to go because it means, and this is why he says it cleaves religion and philosophy apart, because that just means that if this is what God is, if God is a stranger, then religion is the only thing that holds any answers. Because it's the it's – because the, uh, religion is just that special space where God shows up, where this stranger appears. But if the real problem is, is that we are estranged from the source of our existence, well, then all parts of our existence, when they are no longer estranged, can speak about God.
1: Yes, 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 Okay, because, yeah.
0: Because God is not strange to us. God is simply estranged from us. And once again, I'm like, Tillich, I think that's right. <laughs> I just think, I think that's correct. Um, yeah. I don't know if that, I sure I could come up with a thing that connects to ethics, but I won't. But, but, but yeah, I think that, that, that um, the way of the stranger and uh, thing in particular, um, maybe this is my final thought on the ethics piece. Like this is what makes ethics um, uh, I think very difficult because all of us are essentially strangers to each other.
1: Yeah. In a fundamental way.
0: Yeah. And, and so the, the, we can only know each other m- through mediation and faith and, and, and trust, right. Everything outside of that is, um, uh, is guesswork. Uh, and, uh, and this is what makes ethics hard. If we don't trust each other and how can we, how is it possible? How's it possible to trust to trust a stranger? Right. You don't you, you don't know them. But with God all things are possible.
1: Boom. You did it. Bam! Yeah, no, this is, I'm going to have to, I mean, obviously I will re-listen to this when I edit it, but like, I'm going to have to chew on a lot of this. I did not expect, I honestly thought I was going to ask my question and you'd have a 15 minute answer and we'd be done. (laughs) (laughs) But this was good.
0: I'm glad. I'm glad this it feels like it was all a bunch of shit that's been sw- swirling around in my head, and I'm glad it sort of made sense with what the topic was. so we will see. I did not expect there to be a Kant discourse. I did not <laughs> expect that I, I was like, well Kant, oh God, am I really talking about Kant? I hate Kant. I know, but I think
1: it was really necessary. I think I needed that piece to kind of, it really did unlock like the hidden structure that that I have absorbed over the course of my life. So yeah, I cool. think it was good. I think it was good. Well, will you sign us off?
0: I will. Friends, thanks for listening. This has been an episode of What the Hell is a Pastor? We are Ethan and Joe, and we will see you next time.
1: The Hell is a Pastor is a part of the Disruptive Disciples Podcast Network. Our theme song is written by Joe Schoenwolf, performed by Joe Schoenwolf, Ian Uriola, and Paul Uriola, and produced by Paul Uriola. Find us across the internet at WTHIAP or visit us at WTHIAP.com to get connected to our Patreon merch and some other stuff. Thanks for listening. And remember friends, Ethan gave me all the money in his wallet.